Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the novelist and biographer Alec Navala Lee, whose new book, Inventor of the Future, The Visionary Life of Buckminster Fuller, explores the multifarious work of the 20th century artist, designer, technologist, engineer, and inventor. Alec is the author of Astounding, John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and The Golden Age of Science Fiction, as well as three thriller novels. His writing has also been published in The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Slate. Although much has been written about Bugminster Fuller, we've yet to see a biography that gets to the true human core of who he was, based on primary sources. And how this mythology has rubbed off on and inspired so many of the leaders in technology today, for better and for worse. But before we get into the episode, we'd first like to thank our sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer, Grand Seiko, which brings an incredible level of craft and detail to every watch it makes. A great example of this is the new SBGK017, a U.S. special edition from their Elegance Collection that's shipping this fall. Taking its inspiration from Nanbuteki ironware, a form of traditional metalworking produced in the city of Morioka in Japan's Iwate Prefecture, the watch is a proud embodiment of the craft of the company's hometown. The area is home to Grand Seiko's Shizuku Ishii Watch Studio, where the company produces its mechanical watches and other high-end timepieces. Dating back to Japan's Edo period and prized for its beauty and durability, the handcraft tradition of Nanbu Teki continues on to this day. The ironware features a distinctive texture called arare, or hailstone, on its exterior, a texture that finds its way onto the dark gray dial of the SBGK-017. Rendered in stainless steel, the case is polished by a special Zeratsu method created to accentuate the beauty of the case's curved surfaces. The dial and sapphire crystal are also curved, giving the watch a classic look and feel. To find out more about the SBGK-017 or Grand Seiko's other distinctive timepieces, head to www.grand-seiko.com. And now here's our conversation with Alec Navala lee Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So just to start, little icebreaker, why did you write the book? So uh, the book uh, is Inventor of the Future, The Missionary Life of Buckminster Fuller. Fuller is not as well known today as he used to be. But you know, growing up in the Bay Area, I was a big fan. I still am. You know, I've been interested in Fuller's life at least since high school. I discovered him through uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, which uh, sort of, you know, as I'm sure you're well aware, is sort of this uh, oversized guide to books and tools for the counterculture that was popular originally in the late 60s. But, you know, I discovered it in my local library. And if you read the catalog, uh, you discovered Fuller. His books were still, you know, featured there very prominently. And so I would say probably as a freshman in high school, I got some of those books out. I tried to work through Fuller's ideas, some of the geometry, and I've always found them really fascinating. And I realized um, 
few years ago that uh, there had never really been a good biography of Fuller in, in the sense that I think of a biography as being based on primary sources and his letters and his papers, you know, and not just his version of events, which is not entirely accurate in many cases. And so I thought this book has to exist. He is a really intriguing figure who deserves a larger audience. And I figured it was the right time for this book to happen. And Buckminster, of course, dedicated his life to making the world work for all of humanity. He didn't think of himself as stuck in one field or another. So I wanted to ask, how does this thinking in your mind relate to this current moment we're in? The thinking of global housing problems, shelter, transportation, education, etc. So Fuller, you know, I, you know, he's a very complex figure. And the picture that he presented to the world was not always accurate. You know, he was not a perfect person, right? And this book, you know, tries to tease out the reality behind the story. But that myth or that image that he presented of this comprehensivist, of this generalist, I find incredibly compelling. He did embody it for people around the world for decades. You know, this person who saw whole systems, right? You know, to him, there is no distinction between architecture and design and economics and philosophy and mathematics and geometry. It's all part of one big picture. And you could kind of argue whether or not he successfully managed to bridge all those disciplines. But you know, for a lot of people, especially in the late 60s, early 70s, he sort of embodied this idea that to solve problems, you have to encompass the world in this very universal sense. You start at the highest possible level, starting at the level of the universe, as you like to say, and then kind of work your way down from there to make sure you don't miss anything important. And I think we are faced with problems today that are wicked. They're very hard to get your head around, and it's hard to separate different issues from each other. And I think Fuller's example is really inspiring. And I do think that if you look at his life and his career, there are tools there that are still useful to people who are trying to make change. Who in contemporary society or culture do you think most reflects Bucky's thinking now? I mean, is there anyone that stands out to you as someone representing the Bucky ideals of pushing art, science, engineering, and technology forward? You know, that's a good question. And I'm actually going to say no. And it's not because I don't think those people exist. Uh, and there are people I could, I, could, I could cite. But one sort of thing that I, I took from this book, and this is a way that this book evolved kind of as I was uh, researching it, is that I think we actually need to get past the idea of the one person, like the sort of individual who is going to kind of tell us how the world works. The auteur. Yeah. And, you know, I understand that that we need that sort of figure as an inspiration. And I think that figure, you know, in various forms, and I can name other people, you know, that have, have inspired me in that way over the years, you know, have influenced me in trying to see things in a certain way. But I think that there is a very fine line between embracing that ideal and idolizing individuals. As a culture, we have learned to be a little bit suspicious of people that present us with those stories, you know, with the sort of the figure of the um, visionary. I think in the year 2022, we've kind of lived through enough uh, as a society to see that, you know, these people aren't always what they claim to be. We should be a little bit skeptical of those claims. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, I know it's a little bit contradictory. I do see Fuller and people like him as interesting case studies. I'm not sure I see them as role models. I, I see them as people whose lives present us with interesting examples of how this kind of thinking works and kind of what the consequences can be, you know, uh, in thinking of those ways. But I, I don't necessarily hold up anyone in particular as someone to emulate, if that makes sense. I, I do have to ask, though, I mean, what, what about Elon? How do you see Elon and Bucky connecting? So I mentioned Elon Musk a lot. 
when I talk about Fuller, because I think he is actually the closest equivalent in some ways, right? He's very different in other ways. So one thing about Fuller is that, you know, he never became the world's richest man. He barely was able to get by for a lot of his career. That is a huge difference, obviously. But in terms of kind of this person who, for better or for worse, you know, represents, you could say the future, represents big thinking, represents disrupting established industries and patterns, you know, the way Musk appears to his fans and appeared to a lot of people at one point is very similar to how Fuller was perceived. The difference is that Fuller died in 83. And when he died, you know, the idealized vision of him was essentially intact because he was allowed to kind of shape the narrative. Enough time had passed where he was the only source for a lot of the facts and what actually happened for a lot of these episodes in his career. And so, you know, it wasn't until much later that people started to say, well, you know, he was flawed. He was not always good to his colleagues. He took ideas from his students to kind of like fill out the picture and make it more objective. And I think with Musk, he is so famous and so powerful in certain ways and, and such a high profile figure that that myth has been deconstructed in real time in front of us. And so he is still influential. He is still, you know, clearly a massively important figure. But I think we have been exposed to the darker side of what that figure can represent in ways that were not true of Fuller until after he was gone. And the same is true, I would say, of Jobs. I mean, with the books that have come out and sort of the conversations that have happened over the last decade. Yeah, he's another great example. And, and you know, I actually opened the book with an anecdote about Fuller meeting Steve Jobs. And I always say this is a big book with a lot of stories, and I could have started this book at any point, but I wanted to open the prologue with this one meeting, you know, this one time these two men, uh, you know, actually uh, crossed paths because to me, Jobs, number one, he was a huge Fuller fan. I think you can see his influence in Apple and in technology in general. And, you know, to understand what Fuller meant to the people who were around, you know, when he was alive, there's no better way than telling the story because Steve Jobs wanted to meet Fuller and there is a connection there between these two people. But we've since learned that Steve Jobs was a difficult person to work with. He was flawed in certain ways that I think are very uh, reminiscent of Fuller. And so to draw that connection, being like, here's what that career looks like if it starts in 1895, you know, instead of 1950, that, that to me is interesting. That to me was a great analogy to kind of help a reader who maybe wasn't even aware of who Fuller was understand what this person meant to people. So it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about self-mythologizing and we're talking about sort of how these icons are created. So one story you tell in the book is about the Demaxian car and the accident, which you do, like you said, not through his own account, but through primary sources, his own letters, correspondence and things, notes, uh, which tells a very different story, which begs the question of, what really did happen with the Demaxian accident, which I think is an interesting narrative to talk about in this story, but also how you see these kind of warp mythologies playing out in the valley and the contemporary futurists of the world today. Yeah, that's a great example. So the very short version, to give people some context, is that up until that point, Fuller had been focusing on housing. And he also talks about a car or a vehicle that is almost like a part of the house that can drive off on its own because he has this idea of a house that is very lightweight, that can be delivered anywhere in the country, that allows for these this sort of like decentralized network of communities that we kind of, you know, are much more familiar with today. But in the 30s, this was a very radical idea. And, you know, to make this uh, idea work, you needed a vehicle that could allow the occupant of this house to travel anywhere. And originally Fuller thought it could fly, you know, it could be a house or like a car that could be a ground vehicle, but also one that could take to the air. 
And so the, there are these sketches of this car that, you know, looks like a sort of a futuristic Buck Rogers kind of vehicle that he is talking about like pretty early on, like in the, in the late 20s. And then in 33, he gets a chance to build a prototype of uh, what he calls the Demaxian car, which obviously he can't build the, the flying version, but he builds this remarkable three-wheeled car that has this kind of ovoid shape with the larger end in the front. It looks like a tadpole or, or a flying fish. And, you know, it's, it's very streamlined. You know, it looks amazing. You know, it, it's featured in newsreels and it gets a lot of press coverage. And what happens is that in October of 33, it's involved in an accident in Chicago and the driver is killed. And Fuller, in the sort of the authorized version of the story, uh, which I believed going into this project, Fuller said that it was involved in a crash because there was another car that was trying to race it and they were speeding along at 70 miles an hour. And this other car struck the Maxine car, which then rolled over and, and killed the driver. And, you know, that's what, according to Fuller, led the car to, um, you know, the, the press coverage turned negative at that point, even though it wasn't the car's fault. But if you look at the actual documents, Fuller's letters, uh, the inquest, press accounts, you realize that this is actually fictional. There was no other car involved in that accident in any meaningful way. The Demaxian car rolled by itself. And that implies to me that this is a design problem, that the car was not stable. You can kind of discuss why Fuller did this, but it's obvious that he is shaping the narrative in a certain way to deflect blame. He's trying to vindicate the design of the car and trying to implicate other factors that were out of his hands for what happened. And I find this really interesting because, you know, this is a version of events that was essentially unquestioned for decades, even in really good academic works about Fuller and the car. And enough time had passed that no one had gone back to look at those sources. When you do, you find that the story that Fuller tells, it's actually about his own failure as a designer. It's about, you know, ways in which the car was not safe and the way that he was able to kind of... Um, construct this alternate version of what happened that was accepted for so long, I think is actually very instructive. It's very reflective of the kind of person that Fuller was. You know, he was also fiercely competitive, which you write about, which also echoes some of the tenor of the Valley today. Do you think that this is ultimately kind of a necessary quality of someone to push ideas through? I do. And I think it's interesting that with Fuller, that competitiveness, that ambition, you know, that is so clear when you go back to his earlier life is kind of erased again from the story. The Fuller of popular imagination is this very otherworldly visionary figure, you know, who who seems like he comes from an, another planet. But to do what he did, right, to repeatedly try to get these ideas off the ground, to start companies, to motivate students to build domes for him, all these things... The qualities that that requires, I refer to Fuller, you know, occasionally as almost the prototype of the startup founder, and, and I think that's not an accident. I think that he arrives at these strategies that you then kind of see independently rediscovered in Silicon Valley, or you know, in some cases influenced directly by Fuller. People who are trying to raise money and they're trying to get ideas off the ground, and they're trying to convince investors and customers and clients to sign up for this vision. It would be more surprising if Fuller lacked those qualities. You know, I, I think that there's no way, especially in America in the 20th century, that you can kind of be that kind of person without having that kind of personality. And, and I think with Fuller, for reasons that we can maybe get into later, he eventually kind of revises his life story to remove some of those aspects. He, he's saying that he is a pure experimenter. He's just trying to test ideas and is not interested in money. And, and that's not true. It, it would be more shocking if uh, he had managed to do those things without some of those qualities. 
Right. He just wasn't very good with money. I mean, that was mainly the problem, right? It, but we look at things like the uniform. You know, he, he was always seen in the suit. We have the hoodie. We have the mock turtleneck. We have these sort of repeated tropes. And yeah, I mean, it's really funny. Like even the like tiny things like, like biohacking. Fuller talks about his diet and his sleep schedule in ways that I think are actually very reminiscent of, of the way a lot of startup founders, you know, talk about these things. Totally. And, and I wonder... From your perspective, being someone who lives in that environment now, who knows that environment and who's studied Fuller so deeply, what do you think we're getting wrong about that? And what do you think that that these founders maybe shouldn't be adopting the sort of artifice or the um, or the lack of self understanding? Well, I mean, I think it depends on what your objectives are. Okay, so if you want to become a startup founder, Fuller is still a great role model. He is someone who figured these things out in the 30s and 40s. What kind of person do you have to be to you know, encourage people to, to listen to you and to get those ideas out in the world? If you actually want to get things done in a permanent way, I'm not sure Fuller is your, your best example. I would say this, you know, we, we call these people startup founders for a reason. They are very good at starting things up. You know, Fuller starts up so many things over the course of his career that then kind of peter out. I think it's because like that model, it's really good at certain things. You know, it, it's really good at generating enthusiasm early on, and you can maybe raise some money, and you can kind of you know make these prototypes. But there's a like a more boring set of skills that you need to actually kind of build a business and, and kind of build a, something that's sustainable. And, and Fuller lacked those skills. All right, I think that's very clear. You know, he was great at getting the ball rolling, and, and he does this again and again. He starts these amazing ideas and projects, and sometimes there are other people who take those ideas and they actually go in off and, and, and build the business, and they build domes or they work as engineers uh, or on, on these structures. And Fuller, I don't know whether he lacked the interest in doing that or lacked the skill set, or maybe it, it was a combination of both. But I think that's interesting, right? Like, if you want to become a charismatic figure who gives TED Talks, Fuller is your guy. There is no one better at that than he was. If you want to, you know, actually create designs that affect people's lives in a permanent way, maybe he's not the right person to look to. You know, it's funny, in, when the Whitney retrospective was here in New York, there was this little piece by the elevator that I think largely went unnoticed that was a timeline of great historical events that Bucky had kept and put his own influence sort of in parallel. It was like a, the, the timeline of the history of the world and the timeline of the history of Bucky. And he was sort of looking for these things, which the hubristic nature of that is extraordinary. What I kept thinking about in, in looking at your work on him was, you know, what was he pushing against? He was born blind. He had this diminutive stature. Was there a deeper psychological reading that you had of this, of his need to be important? And did that drive maybe more than the curiosity of the things he was making? Yes. I, I think, you know, this is actually a great point. I think that he had that drive, that ambition, and in some ways it preceded the ideas. Okay. So, so it, there are two sides to this, right? Because on the one hand, you can say, yes, he was farsighted. He felt picked on at school. He felt neglected by his family in some ways, but he was also very privileged. He was born into a New England family that you know, wasn't really wealthy, but it was certainly an established part of the upper class, right? And he went to Harvard and he was asked to withdraw twice, you know, so he's a Harvard dropout. And then so, you know, again, we kind of get back to this startup founder where on the one hand, you feel like an outsider and you feel like compelled to prove yourself, to prove your worth to people, but you also benefit from your privilege. 
And I think that that sort of combination is, is, is a powerful one. And I think we see it again and again and, and, and people like Fuller and people who come after Fuller. And I think he was driven throughout his life to prove that he mattered, that he, his ideas were good. Again, like he wanted to build something without quite knowing what it was. And, and let those ideas kind of justify, he arrives at certain ideas that will justify his ambitions. So one really obvious example is he has this idea to build a house in a factory. And this is one of his first big big sort of visions. And this is in the, the late 20s. That I think is where the idea for the Damaxian house starts. He, he wants to sort of scale up. He wants to build an industry uh, because he's getting frustrated by the housing trade, which just builds one house at a time. And so he realizes that the house has to be light. And so he arrives at these materials like uh, aluminum and plastic and, and piano wire, arrives at a, at a house that you could, in theory, build in a factory and transport anywhere in the country. But then later on, he pretends like those design ideas came first. He acts as though he sort of deduced the most efficient house from first principles and then said, okay, we need this kind of industry to make it happen. But I think it was actually the other way around. I think he actually wanted to build the industry first and then arrives at these design solutions and, and these ideas to kind of enable or justify you know, this vision that he's already developed. Which is funny when you think about this idea now of, you know, you ask the kid what they want to be, I want to be famous, not necessarily what they want to be famous for. Yeah, no, I, I understand that impulse. And, uh, you know, Fuller, to me, expresses that impulse beautifully because, you know, he evolves over time, right? The, the ideas that he is endorsing, you know, some are continuous throughout his whole career, but, you know, he goes through these different phases. But that, that desire to be recognized and to kind of, you know, prove his worth is constant. Even at the very end, you see it. And I think this is another factor in his personality that sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah. Well, there's never been like the Buckminster Fuller movie. Maybe there will be now based on your book. Yeah. I, w I think it would be a good story. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I, I think it would be a fantastic uh, movie. So just to wrap up with Bucky for a little bit of this little moment we're having about him where we're going kind of deep on it. To be fair or to shed positive light. What do you think of all the things he did, the house, the map, the car, all the things that he did, which projects do you think have had the most impact today? I always say it's the geometry. I think there are two things. One is sort of this image of the startup founder type that I think he embodied that I think still is influential. I think it was transmitted through people like Steve Jobs to modern day technologists. I think that is a huge part of his legacy and you see it everywhere. But in terms of practical applications. The short version of the story is that Fuller in the late 40s is kind of at a dead end, you know, financially. He's lost a lot of money, you know, for his investors and he has very little prospects of raising money again for these ideas. And so he arrives at the geodesic dome, which is a enclosure, it's like a hemisphere based on triangles that you can essentially build for almost nothing. You can go to the hardware store and buy some wire and some sticks and, and build a dome. And, and for him, this is like a great way forward because he can't afford to build a huge company again. He's not going to be able to build a house in a factory, but he can build the dome using college kids. He does this thing for years where he goes around to different colleges and gives lectures and assigns projects to these students, and they go off and build a dome that he then takes to the next college. This is kind of his virtual corporation. He has this kind of weird you know, operation that allows him to essentially design these structures with almost no resources, okay, because he doesn't really have access to capital. What I find interesting is that the dome has to be really efficient. He has to find a design that is simple enough to be replicated cheaply 
and easily by college kids. And so the geometry of the dome reflects this. It, it ends up being very simple. So you can kind of uh, describe what a dome looks like on one piece of paper with like some numbers, these chord factors, and, and a few diagrams, and that's your plan for the dome. So that's why the dome succeeds. But he also arrives at these principles that are very close to how nature builds. And they end up being very useful to virologists, to chemists, to people who are looking at the interior of the cell um, in ways that I think are actually real. You know, I think these are really interesting insights that were used most famously when they discovered um, the carbon uh, molecule called Buckminster Fullerene. Those scientists really, you know, they went to the library and checked out one of Fuller's books to look for, you know, domes to sort of figure out how this molecule would look like. And to me, this is really intriguing because the same things that make the dome feasible, the simplicity and the fact that you can build it for nothing and it has this geometry that's very straightforward, this is why these rules appear in nature. There's a reason that nature also wants to be efficient. It wants to be able to reproduce things using minimal resources. And so I think Fuller kind of arrives almost inadvertently at these principles that I think are actually very useful and interesting. If there is a place where I think Fuller's ideas deserve to be revisited, it's there. Because I think you know there's something about those tools that are very powerful that I think um, could be used in interesting ways by scientists and engineers. I wanted to ask you about Bucky's relationship with one of his best friends, Isamu Noguchi, the two worked and traveled and hung out together for 54 years from 1929 until Bucky's death in 83. And I was wondering, how do you think about their relationship in the trajectory of Bucky's life? I mean, they seem to be this kind of odd couple, but also incredibly complimentary and sort of rose up with each other. Yeah, no, this is a really interesting story. So Noguchi and Fuller meet, I believe, in 29 in New York. And they're part of this sort of circle of bohemians that meet at a, a place called uh, Romani Marie's Tavern in Greenwich Village. And, you know, Noguchi is much younger than Fuller. Like Fuller, you know, Noguchi is this charismatic figure. You know, everyone talks about his physical beauty and he has, you know, lots of girlfriends and he's just someone who just impresses people when they first meet him, and, you know, sort of like Fuller. And, and the two of them connect in this way. And you look at the way that Fuller describes their friendship. And, and you know, early on, they're both poor, like kind of struggling artists in the village. And Fuller is sleeping on the floor of Noguchi's studio. And they're like, just kind of barely getting by. And he's, he describes it in almost like these erotic terms. You know, Fuller talks about Noguchi being this beautiful boy. He says that they were in love. He says they were not lovers, right? But there is this like interesting subtext there where there is this something beyond friendship that Fuller feels with Noguchi. And what I find interesting is that they are very close for a period, I would say, from the late 20s to the mid 30s. They have a brief falling out because Fuller has an affair with one of Noguchi's girlfriends. And there is this sort of interesting love triangle there that I talk about. And then at that point, you know, they, they do diverge a little bit. You know, they, they are still close emotionally. But, you know, Noguchi, I believe, eventually starts to be a little bit more skeptical of Fuller's designs, of Fuller's approach to technology. And you see him starting, I would say, in the 50s. Noguchi starts to experiment with stone and with these like monumental sculptures that are the opposite of the tension-based models and domes that Fuller is building. And again, like I, I don't know as much about Noguchi's career as I do about Fuller's, obviously. But to me, this is very interesting. They're still close. They've shared so many experiences together as younger men when they're both trying to kind of make their mark on the world. But then Noguchi goes in this other direction. You know, he's he, you know, maybe after World War II, he starts to distrust this technological philosophy that Fuller never entirely lets go of. 
and the last, you know, sort of interesting difference between these two men is that uh, Noguchi actually earns money. Noguchi actually becomes successful in ways that Fuller has trouble doing. Noguchi builds a museum that's still there in Queens. You can go see this space that is the Noguchi studio. And Noguchi was getting commissions and, and building, you know, sculptures at a time when Fuller was having trouble doing this. And I think that's also instructive that Noguchi, unlike Fuller, you know, he was more pragmatic. I think he was able to kind of build his legacy in a way that Fuller did not. And so again, like these two men kind of move in parallel throughout their lives. And you're right that they were close friends and there is this like, you know, very strong connection there. But I also find that the way that they diverge to be very interesting. I think it's also really interesting that Noguchi's final project completed in his lifetime was the Challenger Memorial in Miami. And it's actually very much based on Fuller's geometry and is sort of a testament on some level to human ingenuity, but also the challenges of innovation and what can go wrong. So sort of an interesting connection there too. Well, there's one funny story about that. So this is a sculpture that has the shape of what Fuller called the tetrahelix. Fuller was obsessed with a polyhedron called the tetrahedron, which is a four-sided pyramid. And Fuller said that if you take these tetrahedra and you join them together by their faces, you get this helix shape, which he compares to the structure of DNA. Fuller says if you keep adding the um, these tetrahedra, you can build this infinitely long chain of polyhedra. And then when Noguchi and his collaborator uh, Shoryu Sadao, who was Fuller's uh, you know associate as well, they actually start to build the sculpture, they realize that Fuller was wrong. They realize that it does not repeat infinitely; it stops after a while. And so Fuller either accidentally or deliberately misrepresented the structure in his work to kind of either prove a point or because he wanted this to be true. He wanted to say, here's a way that my geometry can express something fundamental about the world, about how nature works. And in this one case, he was wrong. And they didn't discover this until they actually tried to to build it for real. And Bucky and Noguchi also shared this belief in globalism. And I had to bring it up because, you know, we're at this time where that is one of the norms of how people view the world. But at the time, that was not really the norm. And so I was wondering, what do you make of their belief in that and in the context of today? Like, what would they make of today's current globalist moment and internet age? So I really can't speak to Noguchi. Um, I can speak to Fuller. And I can say that Fuller is, in some ways, ahead of his time when it comes to this idea of globalization. Fuller compares the nation-state the sort of network of countries, you know, that we have to blood clots that are preventing the free circulation of resources. And, and he, he says, and I think accurately, we have enough resources in the world to provide for everyone. There's no technological reason why, you know, everyone in the world should not be able to live a fulfilling life. But we have these political, social barriers that make it impossible to realize that. I think this is correct. I don't always agree with Fuller's solutions. And I think he neglects politics. I think he just sort of sees politicians and even like political activists as sort of this inconvenience or they're missing like the, the big picture. And I think that in practice, we actually need politics to get things done. But I do think that you know his basic vision, this idea that the world should be more connected is true in some ways. I, I just don't think he always worked through the implications of what that would look like in practice. So you took a very human approach to this book, and it was so clear that what you were trying to do was to really unpack Bucky as a human being, this idea of imperfect greatness that was written in the Times. What did you hope to impress upon a kind of younger generation 
that is looking at a generation of readers and thinkers and people who may go out and try and change the world. What did you want to impress upon them about the idea of, uh, that's unattainable as a change maker? What did you want to sort of humanize or eye to eye with this? So I, I'm a Fuller fan, as I said before, and I think there are ideas that he has that are fantastic, and I want to get him back in the conversation. And I think I realized this was the kind of book you needed, because the version of Fuller that was currently out there, it wasn't working. There are plenty of books out there about Fuller if you just want to read the sort of sanitized, you know, idealized picture of him as this sort of grandfatherly, friendly genius. And, you know, for whatever reason, it's not connecting. And I think the reason is that, as I said earlier, you know, we kind of understand that there are downsides to being this kind of person. The startup founder myth conceals certain facts about the way technology impacts people uh, in real life and kind of like the, the personal choices that you have to make to become that kind of person. And I think to me, Fuller is only useful when you see the big picture. You see that, you know, he did take huge risks. He did have ideas that were ahead of his time and he accomplished a lot, but he did that at a cost. There were interpersonal costs. There were costs when it came to his intellectual honesty. It's only helpful, you know, to people if I inform them of what those consequences were, right? Because if you go into the world being like, I'm going to be like Fuller and I'm going to be this sort of genius generalist, you're going to fail because that kind of person doesn't actually exist, or at least, you know, not in a way that becomes this person that ends up on the cover of Time magazine. To become that person, there are trade-offs. And you have to do certain things and be a certain way. And I both want to kind of give people the tools to maybe realize the more positive aspects of that legacy in their own lives and, and, you know, as they pursue their own projects. But also, you know, I want to encourage people to look more critically at people like this. You mentioned Elon Musk, and that's an obvious one, right? But there are less obvious cases of people who embody this ideal that we have to question. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes, I would think, made a lot of people question it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great example. I mean, I think about her a lot because, you know, she was trying to build something. You know, she was trying to build a device. And it's very hard, right? <laughs> like, she discovers that you you say you want to build this thing that can do all these things and fit into this, like, you know, tiny box on a tabletop. And it could be impossible. The engineering, you know, might not work out. I think uh, Fuller... I don't think he kind of went to that extent, but he certainly made claims for his ideas that were not true at the time, right? Like the Damaxing car is a good example. And you could say that he's just trying to kind of fake it until you make it. He's trying to like keep the story going until he can resolve these problems. And who knows, maybe if he'd been born during a time when he had more access to venture capital, or if he had another 10 years to work out, you know, the kinks in the design, you know, it, it might've been different. But I think, you know, we have to be aware that this is kind of what people like this do. And I'm not saying it's necessarily... I'm not trying to be judgmental here. I'm trying to be objective. I'm trying to describe what I see in terms of like what is required to get things done at this time in history, you know, that Fuller represents. And I think his life, because it is finished, he died years ago. We have this massive archive of materials that tell us about what he did and why. It's this great case study where you can kind of see the big picture and you can kind of look at these phases in detail, a level of detail that isn't possible with people who are still with us right now. We've discussed jobs a couple of times on this program, and it's interesting what happened in the the decades since his passing, how even with the critical nature of the stories about his personal life and everything, he's still not seen that way. You know, that story doesn't really travel. He's still sort of deified as as this man of greatness. So that brings me to this idea of, and he was, but like Fuller, there are things to, there are insights there that we're not really looking at, which brings me to this idea of the importance of the, the biography. 
And especially in today's age when, when we have this sort of post-truth moment and there's just a whole lot of information out there that we're, we're generally just looking for evidence to what we've presupposed about things. I mean, we're definitely echo chambered, right? And what do you view as the power right now and the importance of crafting biography in this moment in time? I love that question. So I am a biographer. I kind of arrived at biography almost accidentally because, you know, my interest is in ideas. And I kind of realized that, you know, one of the best ways to convey ideas is through someone's life. I think that Fuller is a good example of this because you follow him and there's this through line that just like leads you into so many interesting places. And I think that I've learned so much looking at his life. I think I hope that is true of other people as well. And I think that biography is, it's interesting. Like I think about my first book was a history of science fiction and it talked about, you know, different science fiction writers, people like L. Ron Hubbard and yeah. L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. And, you know, Robert Heinlein, Asimov, Campbell, people sometimes ask, you know, does this affect the way I, re I read the story? You know, how does this affect, you know, how I, you know, read the work? And I think it's different for everyone. You know, it, it's up to you, the individual, if you even have an interest in the, the life of a writer. But speaking as a writer myself, what I find interesting is the story of how these people survived. How did they do it? Right? Because I'm always, you know, as a writer, you're kind of always looking for insights and advice because it's a, it's a difficult career. And I've learned so much by considering the lives of writers I admire, not so much like, you know, how did they write these stories, but how did they endure? Like, how did they pay the rent? <laughs> yeah. Just on, on like a practical level, you know, how do you become this kind of person? And, and Fuller to me is very similar. Like, I, I don't really have the ambition of becoming a person like Fuller, but for those who do, and even for those of us who have other goals, his life is incredibly interesting just because you can see, as I say, you know, the documentation and the primary sources here are so rich that no matter what your goals are, you can probably learn something from his life. When I read a biography, that, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for insights that I can apply to problems that I'm facing. And I think there's no better genre of storytelling you know, than biography for giving you that kind of insight. So final question and to finish, Bucky often wondered, are we heading toward utopia or oblivion? What's your take? <laughs> I'm not sure you want to hear my take. Uh, you know, it, it's fairly pessimistic uh, at this point. I, I think about this a lot. I think my views on this have changed. I, I think if I'd written this book in, say, the mid-90s, you know, like my view on these things would be more optimistic. The sort of the best way I can kind of keep this answer limited to the subject at hand is that Fuller to me is a design icon, all right? And Fuller tended to present solutions to problems that were based on design. And that's a big part of the reason why he was so appealing to people like Steve Jobs or Stuart Brand, because he's saying, you know, there's a way to solve problems that doesn't involve politics, that we can find tools and these technologies, you know, that will improve people's lives. And maybe in the mid-90s, I would believe this. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that design is important, and I think design can improve people's lives. I don't think it's sufficient. And I think one issue that we have today is that it's very tempting to go with pure design solutions to these intractable problems because the political side is so daunting. But unfortunately, as Fuller's life shows, a lot of the things that he predicted have happened. You know, technology has become more efficient. We've seen incredible advances in all kinds of respects that have resulted in 
it did not solve climate change. It has not solved the issues of inequality or you know authoritarian regimes. It may have worsened them. Yes, exactly. And you don't always know what the uh, what the outcome will be. You know, there are these externalities to every kind of change that you can't predict. And I think that's very true if you look at what Fuller says and kind of the way the world has changed in the you know generation since he died. You know, I'm not optimistic uh, in terms of finding solutions based purely on the kind of vision that Fuller represents. Uh, I think he might be part of the answer. I think that these are useful tools, but I think they are not adequate in themselves. Alec, thank you so much for joining us. This was fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't really mean to end on such a, like a downer uh, kind of note, but thank you. I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks to our episode sponsor, the Japanese luxury timepiece manufacturer Grand Seiko, which raises the pure essentials of watchmaking to the level of art. You can learn more about the company at www.grand-seiko.com. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.